So in this series, we're talking about those times when we're easily offended or offendable. And uh, re- recently, Kelly and I were just right down the street over here on 454. We were sitting at a light, and next to me was the turn lane. And in the turn lane, there was a guy here, and there was a guy behind him. And you know that guy, when the light changes and a half second in, has to honk his horn? Yeah, that was the guy behind the person next to us. And as soon as he honked his horn, the guy in front of him honked his horn. And they went back and forth about 20 times. And then they finally turned, and they're still honking at each other. And we're going down 454 now. And now the guy in back decides to drive up next to the guy in front and tells him he's number one, if you know what I mean by that and they keep on driving down the street and then eventually one of them does this fancy move the other one does a fancy move they're going back and forth now I'm keeping an eye on all this because I realize I may have to figure out a way to deal with this if it gets ugly and I have no problem sending Kelly out there to deal with it and so we can continue to keep an eye on things and thankfully everything worked out and, and they ended up parting ways but Kelly and I started talking about how easily we are offended And here in this day and age, man, that's the world we live in. It's the air that we are breathing right now. Just so easy to become offended. And in this series, as I talk about offense, I'm talking about those times when we not only get our feelings hurt, but then what are we gonna do with it after? We not only get betrayed, but what are we gonna do with that after? Are we gonna let anger and unforgiveness and hate grow in our hearts? Are we gonna allow disunity to come into our lives and into our church? And so when I I talk about that phrase, unoffendable, that's what I mean, that we wouldn't allow our hearts to go to a place of revenge, unforgiveness, or anger, that we would somehow figure out God's way and he would help us in that. And that's what we're talking about here. And as we've seen, there's so much dividing us right now. There's the safety stuff. We have people, I've heard from people who have said, we will not come to church as long as we have to wear masks. I've heard from other people who say, we're not coming to church because not enough people are taking the mask seriously. And so, man, we have such passionate, different opinions about this right now. And then there's the racial brokenness, and we're trying to help, you know, bring healing to all that. And we, we, we then have politics, and, and, you know, we're 30-something days away from the election right now. I think we're all holding our breath and praying a good bit about that, right? And so there's all these things that can potentially divide us, but we just have to be so incredibly careful with it all. We've got to instead choose that we're not going to be offended. And we don't do that by pretending that there aren't problems. Like I'm not saying, oh, let's just pretend that the safety issue isn't a problem and there is no racial brokenness and let's pretend this politics thing isn't a big deal. I'm not saying that. It's just how do we go about bringing healing? How do we go about having our conversations and even disagreeing? And that's what we're talking about here in this series. And before I continue on, I got to remind you a couple of things. Number one, You did not inspire this message series, okay? So I promise you, I didn't have a bad dream about you and remembered something hurtful that you did and I started writing this series, okay? I promise if I have something to talk with you about, we'll talk about it person to person. I'm not trying to get you a secret message. Number two, I know God's working on this in my own heart. I've gotta allow God to change me just like he's gotta change you. And number three, a lot of you guys have been reading the book called Unoffendable by Brant Hansen, and I can't encourage you guys enough to check it out. And if you don't have the money for it, we will purchase it for you. I have some copies up on my desk. We'll happily hand to you. You can audible it, you can uh, Kindle it, you can iBooks it, whatever you wanna do. But man, it's just so incredibly good. And I borrowed the name of the series, and this is original content, but I'm gonna quote Brant a few times here tonight. But this is all so important to talk about because as we've been seeing in this series, If the enemy can't destroy our faith, he will destroy our unity, right? If he can dangle something in our faith to distract us, then we get completely off mission. Uh, This morning as I was walking out on stage, I saw this in the office and, and I just thought to myself, man, like if I continued the rest of the message like this, would this be a problem for anybody? 
Like, would this be a little bit distracting possibly for you? Would you maybe not be able to stay on mission with what you're supposed to be getting out of tonight? I'll tell you, I think the enemy's doing the same exact thing. He's dangling different things just to distract us. He dangles some offense. He dangles some unforgiveness. And if we take that, instead of winning, Je- winning people to Jesus and impacting our community, we're now trying to get people on our side and win the argument. And that is so deadly to God's mission in the church. And so we, as a church, instead are deciding, what would it look like to be unoffendable? And in week one, we realized we have a choice. And here was the bottom line from week one. To be undefendable, you have to choose to believe that only God sees all, right? That only God sees all, right? I can choose to be unoffendable when I realize God alone sees all. And that there's grace and humility for every single person we lay eyes on because we recognize everybody's in process. Everything has to be wrapped in grace and truth. There's this old Quaker saying, okay? And the Quakers were legit, man. They didn't mess around. This old Quaker saying that I love. I want us to adopt this as a church. And here's the saying, Hold the crown six inches above somebody's head so they can grow up into it. I just love that. Like, that is a beautiful vision. That's the heart of Jesus. Like, you have a crown held over your head because you're a child of the king, right? You're a child of God. And what we get to do if we're at our best, when we're at our best, is hold these crowns six inches above one another's heads and then say, now grow up into it. This means a few things. It means I know you're not done growing, neither am I. And it means I'm gonna be patient with you and I'm gonna cheer you on and pray you on until you grow up into all that God has for you to be. That's the heart of this series. That's the heart of what it looks like to be unoffendable. And we can say, I will choose to be unoffendable because God alone sees all. Then last week we saw this other choice we have. I will choose to be unoffendable because of Jesus. It's that simple. Because of his love, mercy, and forgiveness, we can choose to be unoffendable. Because of the way he's treated us, we can treat others differently. We can become like him in the way he treated us. But some of you guys might kind of have this question. It's like, how am I going to live the unoffendable life? Like, how am I going to pull it off, Doug? And you might be thinking, I have two problems. The first problem is, I don't want to live the unoffendable life, right? I don't want to. There's a problem with my will or my wants. And the second problem might be, I don't know how to act on it. Even if I did want to do the right thing, I don't know how to act on it. I have an action problem. So either we have a broken will or we have some broken actions we can't follow through on when it comes to loving and forgiving. We're hung up on this and we can't quite figure out how to make it right. And so what I want to do today is talk with you about how to want this and then how to act on it how to want to be the kind of person that lives an unoffendable life, and then how to actually act on it and live it out. Now, there's another thought some of you guys may have had during this series, and the thought is this. Isn't the world screwed up, though? Like, isn't the world a complete mess? And Doug, you keep talking about showing grace and loving people and serving people and having peace with people that don't see things the way I see them. Doug, isn't the world so messed up? In fact, Doug, wouldn't you kind of say that when it comes to the morality and the climate and all of different convictions and beliefs and the way that people live, wouldn't you say that we kind of live in like a warped and crooked generation? What do I do with that, Doug? You see, well, here's what I think the problem is. I think for the church, for a long time, the way that the church at large has handled living in a warped and crooked generation is we yell at all the warped and crooked people and tell them they're warped and crooked and we expect that to work somehow. Like we expect them, us just pointing at them and saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, stop doing that. And we expect that's gonna actually do something. 
What will actually work though? That's what we're gonna see tonight. And not only will we see what will work, we'll see then our potential if we live this out, if we live the unoffendable life, what God could do through us. And so we're gonna look in Philippians chapter two. We started there last week. If you have a Bible app, you have a Bible, go ahead, open it up to Philippians two. We looked at the first eight verses last week. If you're watching on the stream, then you're gonna see the verses right there on the camera, right on the TV or computer. And uh, we're gonna look at verses uh, uh, nine and then beyond. And what I wanna do real quick is just remind you what we saw last week. We saw Paul talking about Jesus who loved us so much that he gave his life. He took all that was owed to him off the table and said, I will go serve these people who hate me. That warped and crooked generation, yeah, I'll go serve them and give my life for them. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here and I know that you breathe the same air I breathe right now and it's full of a lot of tension, it's full of a lot of angst, it's full of a lot of confusion because of all that's going on in our culture right now. And today I wanna point you to the hope. And so we're gonna pick up in verse nine. And you guys can read along with me in your app or on the screen. It says in verse nine, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what is all that about? Well, if you need some motivation to live the unoffendable life, all you have to do is remember all Jesus has done for you and that now he sits on a throne in heaven and his name is above every name. If you're here and you're not sure, man, is God winning this battle? Like, is there hope for the story of mankind? Yes, there is hope because Jesus is on the throne. And what a motivation that should be for you and me. But then we're going to get incredibly practical here in verse 12. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, ready for this? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what is Paul talking about here? This is really important. Remember the context of this chapter and this verse. He's talking about things like love and unity and forgiveness and humility and living the unoffendable life, right? And Paul just told us that we should approach these topics with some fear and trembling. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some of you guys might not like some of the wording in this verse, right? It's like, well, what's with the fear and trembling? Why would I be fear and trembling? Would I, would I, am I supposed to be afraid of God? Am I supposed to be afraid of this whole salvation thing? No, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that our salvation is so important. It's paramount. It's vital. It's of number one importance to us. It's so important that sometimes we ought to look at this relationship we have with Jesus and with some fear and trembling and some off, like awful, like um, off-filled reverence, look at Jesus and say, Lord, am I, am I like lined up with you? And remember the context, we're talking about love, forgiveness, unity. So there should be some fear and trembling as we look at our own lives and say, God, am I living out my salvation in a way that honors you? In the way that I love, in the way that I forgive, in the way that I talk with people who don't think like me, in the way that I interact with people in this warped and crooked generation, am I living in such a way that there is love flowing out of my life? Am I doing what you're calling me to do? And so we're not supposed to be afraid of Jesus or our salvation, but there should be some times we take this almost inward scan of our heart and say, Lord, am I synced up with you? And then you might say, but what's with working out our salvation? Like some of you might be like, what does that even mean? I thought we didn't work for our salvation. I thought it was just a gracious gift that God has given to us. Well, listen, what he says was we work out our salvation, not work for our salvation, right? 
Those are two different things. You should not, I should not work for my salvation. It's a gift to me. There's nothing I could do to earn it. It was 100% the grace of God that this gift of salvation was given to me. And if you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, you can leave here with the gift of salvation, one you didn't earn or do anything to really have in your life on your own merit. So what does it mean when it says work out our salvation? Well, let me try to illustrate this for you. My boys love baseball. And from the time they were little, we always had a baseball bat, a wiffle ball bat. We play a lot of baseball and wiffle ball. And I can tell you this, when it comes to baseball, you either have been given the gift of the talent of baseball or you haven't. And you're going, Doug, how do you know this? I know this because I've coached Little League. That's how I know this. And give me 30 seconds at the first practice with all the kids and I'll tell you if they've been given the gift of baseball or not. So my sons have been given the gift of baseball and there's some kids on their teams that just straight up weren't. There's this one kid that was on my team and I kept drafting him back every year, not because he was good at baseball, because he, was, he just had such a big heart. But I'll tell you what, this kid struggled, man. The very first practice, I said, bud, why don't you go out into the field and I'll hit you some grounders. And he ran out there with his batting helmet on and his bat and no glove. And I was like, oh, this is this kid, all right. I, I told him to take some swings. He went back up to the plate and he had his baseball glove. Like, his mitt on his hand and he had he's he trying to hold the bat with the mitt on his hand this kid had no concept of throwing he had no concept of standing where the pitch was coming in. I had to physically move his legs almost every time he was up to the plate and he wouldn't even look at the pitcher this kid was the sweetest kid he had a heart as big as a Costco apple pie but he did not get the concept of baseball because he wasn't given the gift of baseball okay so you and I have been given the gift of salvation right Okay, back to baseball for a minute. Now, you look at kids who have been given the gift of baseball, and there are certain ones that stand out. Why is that? Because some of these kids haven't just been given the gift of baseball, but then they work out that gift, right? They work it out. And the kids who go the farthest have looked to someone greater than themselves, more powerful than themselves for help, right? When my kids were little, they, they from a very young age could swing a bat, hit the ball pretty well. But there were times they'd go, dad, help me swing, help me swing. And they'd invite me into the process and I'd come put my hands on the bat and they'd have their hands on the bat and the pitch would come in and we'd crush the ball, right? Why? Because I'm jacked, A, but B, because they understood how important it was to have someone more powerful than they were in the process. And now back to you and me and our salvation. We've been given the gift of salvation, but we need someone so much more powerful now to help us swing the bat. And so we say, oh God, I'm going to work out my salvation, not work for my salvation. That was a gift, but now I'm going to work it out. And so please, God, come put your hands on the bat as I try to love people that are really hard to love as I try to have peace with people that I really disagree with otherwise God come and empower me God come help me swing the bat you guys see where this is this is going do you guys see how practical this is you might be saying but Doug I still don't want to do this I still don't want to live the unoffendable life or Doug, I do want to live the unoffendable life, but I just can't act on it. Every time I try to, I lose it. I go into the scenario and say, I'm not going to lose my cool. I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to act on that. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to show humility, but I'm in the moment and I just lose it. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you have a struggle with your will or with acting it out. But here today, look at this next verse, verse 13. 
So Paul just told us to work out this aspect of our salvation, love, forgiveness, unity. Then he says this, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Wait, wait, wait. It's God who works in me to do what? Those, those two things we struggle with, right? To will, to have the will to live the unoffendable life, to love and forgive and walk in humility, but also to act on it. And so what's so powerful is for you and me to realize if we're going to live the unoffendable life, man, we have got to be near Jesus. We've got to be close to him. We've got to invite him. Oh, God, I'm swinging away here, and I'm doing my best, and you've given me the gift of salvation, but put your hands on the bat, oh, God, and now would you help me swing? Would you help me love and forgive like never before? And this is how this plays out. You get, you get mad at your friend because they betrayed you, right? And you're going, God, I just don't have the will right now. I don't want, there's nothing in me that wants to do the right thing and love like I've been loved. So God, I'm gonna invite you into my pro this process because your word says it's you who works in me to change my will here. It's you who works in me to change my will when it comes to not wanting to love and not wanting to forgive. Or maybe you've been passed up at work and you can't believe it, or you got passed over for the scholarship and you hate the person that interviewed you and didn't give you the scholarship and you hate the person, your friend who got it, and there's all this tension, and so now you invite them in, God, into the process. God, I wanna do the right thing here, but I don't know how to act on this. And God's looking at you and me and going, oh, I'll, I'll work on your will. I'll help you to live the unoffendable life. I'll help you to want it, and then I'll help you to act on it and live it out. That's how this works. And then Paul aims us back at something. He goes, okay, I told you in verses one through eight, we should be like Jesus and love and be humble. But now I've showed you how to do it, how to work out your salvation by inviting God in and allowing him to work on your will and your actions. And then he aims us back at more unity. He says in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So now he's got us back at unity again. He's going, okay, everybody, I know it's real easy to grumble. I know it's so easy to argue in our culture right now and want to win the fight, but I'm telling you, we've got a better way. We've got a better way. We're going to win people over in a different way. And here is where it gets so interesting. In verse 14, I want to read verse 14 into verse 15. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Did you just hear that? He just confirmed our suspicions. We live in a warped and crooked generation. But the problem is so many of us have decided that the way to defeat the warped and crooked generation is get offended at them and be angry at them and put our finger at them and be scandalized by their warpedness and crookedness, right? But Paul just told us that when the people in the warped and crooked generation look at a bunch of Christians like us who love one another and who aren't arguing and complaining, something powerful is going to happen. God's going to use this in their lives. Brand Hansen says this in the book, I used to think that to be Christ-like meant to be alienated and put off by the sin of others, but it's quite the opposite. Refusing to be alienated and put off by the sin of others is what allows me to be Christ-like. You see, we had it all backwards. We thought that we're supposed to look at people who aren't like us because maybe they don't do the things we do or they do things that we don't do, and that if we were just you know, appalled by it and, and, and angry about it, that that would somehow be pleasing to Jesus. But think about what Jesus did. Jesus went and sat with the people that everybody else was scandalized by. 
Jesus was called the friend of sinners. Jesus went and he dined with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the lowest people of the day. And, and here's this thought that hit me today. When was the last time that I sat with some people that got a bunch of Christians upset that I sat with them? You know what I mean? Like when's the last time somebody looked at me and said, Doug, why are you hanging out with those people? And they were almost offended that I would be with those people. When was the last time? Again, not, not, not that I was doing the things these people are doing, not that I was getting drawn into sin, but that instead I was so loving toward them that I was willing to sit around a table with them and point them to the hope in God and hold the crown over their heads six inches high and say, now grow, grow up into it. When's the last time I was called the friend of sinners, right? You see, that's what Jesus has called us to do in the midst of a warped and crooked generation. He's called you and I to love in a way that makes no, makes no sense and, and forgive in a way that makes no sense. And when we do, it's gonna bring hope to the world and it's gonna bring a bunch of people together who naturally would be enemies and there'll be this love and unity we can share. Remember D.A. Carson we saw last week, he said that we are a natural band of enemies, not a natural band of friends. When we all come here, we're divided by our backgrounds, our skin color, our ethnicity, our politics, how much money we have, what school we went to, or the kind of music we like, the kind of sports we like, the kind of art we like. Like we're divided. We could potentially be a, a band of enemies based on all those things. But instead, if you remember last week, D.A. Carson says this, we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Now here's the potential, everybody, Right? We've been given a gift of salvation. We're gonna work out that salvation. We're gonna work out our struggle to love and to forgive and to walk in unity. We're gonna invite God into the scenario. We're gonna watch him work on our will and our action. And then here's what's gonna happen. I wanna read this whole cluster together. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. And here's our potential, you ready? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You know, it's a little bit cloudy tonight, which kind of stinks because this would have been a really great illustration point if we could just see tonight all of the stars shining against the black sky. I actually really don't like nights like tonight. I love when I can see every star up against that sky. And that's what you and I are supposed to be here in this world. We're supposed to be like those stars shining. And the way we do it, listen, is not by screaming at people in the warped and crooked generation. It's by loving one another and loving them. Here's a phrase I hope sticks with you. Shining, not screaming. Shining, not screaming. You see, I think the church for a long time, not necessarily our church, but the church at large has been screaming at all the bad people out there instead of loving one another and loving them. And I'm not saying that we're gonna not stand up for truth anymore. And I'm not saying we're gonna dumb down what the scripture says because look at what it says at the end. It says, shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to what? The word of life. Well, the word of life is Jesus, but it's also the word of God, right? And so we're gonna still stand up for the truth. It's just we're gonna do it in such a loving way, recognizing everybody's in process. Everybody's still growing. Everybody has a backstory that we don't know the full story of what's happened in their life. And we're gonna show grace and mercy and humility in the midst of all that people are going through. And some of you guys might have some objections. And, and there are some. There's some great objections to the kind of stuff that I've been bringing up here. Some of you guys might be thinking, but isn't God angry about stuff? 
Like, isn't he angry about some of the things going on in our warped and crooked generation? And the answer is yes, God has a righteous anger against some of the horrible things going on. He hates the sex trade. He hates racism. He hates all these different things that are going on. But there's something unique we have to talk about here. God can pull off righteous anger in a way that you and I can't. Sometimes we want to label our own anger as righteous anger. But isn't it crazy how quickly our righteous anger loses its righteousness? You see, Righteous anger doesn't suit you and I very well. It suits God well because he can do it without ever sinning. And he can be holy and just and gracious in it. But you and I really struggle with that, don't we? And so I think what we've got to do is realize that love is a better motivator when it comes to ending things like racism, the sex trade. You see, anger's only gonna get us so far, right? Anger's only gonna get us to a certain degree and get us upset enough to start to do something about it. But soon, the anger has to become love for the perpetrated, right? For the broken. You see, so often we do things out of anger against the perpetrator and we forget about the person perpetrated. We do things out of anger against the person who did the breaking instead of being motivated by love for the person who was broken, Right? And so what you and I have to grow in is our love for that person who's broken, that that would be the driving force to our passion to end racism, to end things like the sex trade, to end things like abortion, that there would be this love behind it because so often Christians are out there angry. Now there's gotta be this love and this grace. Some of you guys might be thinking, but doesn't the Bible say that in our anger we shouldn't sin? So doesn't that mean it's okay if we're angry sometimes? Well, the very next part of that verse goes on to say, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, if you get angry, if you want to do it righteously, it's got to be surrendered to God before the sun sets. Because when you and I let our anger go any longer than that, man, it's going to turn on righteous real quickly. And love is a better motivator. Shining like stars. As we love one another, as we love the world, as we love the broken, listen, as we even love the perpetrator, right? Because that's what Jesus did. You and I were the perpetrator. We know that, right? We sometimes still are, aren't we? And God still graciously loves us. And I want you to think about this for a second. If God does have this righteous anger at things, isn't it amazing that that's not how he led and dealt with you and me, right? He had every right to let his righteous anger against our sin just decimate us. But instead, he humbled himself like we looked at last week and he became a servant and he gave his life. Listen to me. And the warped and crooked generation picked up a hammer and nails and nailed him to a cross. And yet there was still love in his eyes. And so guys, we, we have to be like our Savior. And remember how we do this. We have to be near Jesus. We have to be close to Jesus. We have to ask him to grab a hold of the bat. We have to add, invite him into the process because we just can't pull this off. Our will is broken and our actions are broken. So we've got to invite him in and say, oh Lord, put your hands on the bat. Help me swing here. Help me love here. Help me forgive here. Help me, my broken will, my broken actions. Oh God, change me. I got to be near you. I've got to be near you. There's no way I could have my hands on the bat if my sons have their hands on the bat. There's no way we could pull that off unless we're really close, right? Unless we're really close. And so here's my bottom line for you today. To be unoffendable, you have to be near Jesus. 
to be unoffendable, you have to be near him. There's no way we pull this off otherwise. We've got to be close to Jesus. And so when we're close to him, suddenly he's working on our will, right? And suddenly when we don't want to forgive and love, he's, he's breaking down the hardness of our heart and he's saying, no, let me work on that. And he's working on our actions as we invite him in. And he's doing this new thing in us to produce will and actions that line up with his purposes for our lives. So where are you in all this? Who are the people in your life that you really struggle to love and you don't even want to invite them in? God, I gotta be near you. Jesus, I gotta be near you. You gotta be near me. You gotta empower me. Who's broken you? Who's the person that you, you can be here and you can go, okay, I'm not gonna scream at them anymore. I'm not gonna be scandalized by their actions anymore. But then you get around them and man, your blood just gets boiling. Who are those people? Because that's who you've gotta invite God into the process and say, God, help me act on this. I wanna live the unoffendable life and I wanna shine in a warped and crooked generation motivated by love. Martin Luther King Jr. understood both the demand for justice and the myth of righteous anger. And there was one point where he was at a peaceful protest and he was accused of something and blamed for something he didn't do and he got really angry. And this is what he says. He says, the next day I went home with a heavy heart. I was weighed down by a terrible sense of guilt, remembering that on two or three occasions I had allowed myself to become angry and indignant I had spoken hastily and resentfully, yet I knew that this was no way to solve a problem. You must not harbor anger, I would admonish myself. You must be willing to suffer the anger of the opponent and not yet return anger. And he says this, and this is important for our day. We are not advocating violence. That's a problem right now, right? He says, we are not advocating violence. And then he says this, we want to love our enemies. We want you to love your enemies. Listen to me. He says, be good to them. Listen, this is so important. Love them and let them know you love them. You see, it's, it's easier to kind of love somebody than to let them know you love them. It's easier to be kind to somebody sometimes than it is to at the end of the conversation, which got a little heated, to look somebody in the eyes and go, you know what, I love you, man. I love you. I know that was an intense conversation about politics, but I want to let you know the, the loudest thing about this conversation needs to be my love for you and my love for Christ and his love for you. Love's a better motivator. It's more powerful. So we should be lit, driven by love. And again, this doesn't mean we don't stand up for what's right or we stop looking to what the word of God has to say. We just recognize that it's grace that changes lives. Some of you guys know the story of Zacchaeus. This was a man who was a tax collector. He was hated. And Jesus, who could have been angry at him and screamed at him and been scandalized by the way that he lived his life, instead went and sat in his dining room. And Brandt in the book says this, Zacchaeus' heart was changed. It didn't take a big blasting speech from Jesus at the table either. Wow, we gotta grab a hold of that. It didn't take a big blasting screaming speech from Jesus for Zacchaeus' heart to be changed that day. It says this, he says, the very fact that Jesus wasn't offended by him and would be with him and would show love to him in front of others and would sit in his dining room, that changed his heart. And that's just it. It's always grace that changes heart. Listen, he says this, rules are wonderful. Brent says, I'm a rules guy. Rules bring wisdom. 
into our lives. They help us live better. They spare us from pain. But here, everybody listen to this. You ready? But rules don't change anyone's heart ever. Grace does. Holding the crown six feet or six inches above somebody's head. Grow up into it. Grow up into it. I see what God can do in you. I see what he can do in you. I don't know. I know you're not there yet, just like I'm not there yet. So I'm going to hold this crown up above your head and see what God's going to do. I'm going to root you on. I'm going to cheer you on. I'm going to pray you on until you are all that God can cause you to be. But it takes somebody who's not scandalized and angry to be that kind of Christ follower. Here's what I want you to walk away with from this series that remind you of these bottom lines. I will choose to be unoffendable because God alone sees all. I will choose to be unoffendable because of Jesus. And if you want to be unoffendable, you have to be near Jesus. You have to invite him in to the process. You have to stay connected because as you pray, he's going to change your will. As you read the pages of the word of God, he's going to change your actions. You've got to be near. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and you want to put your trust in him, I would encourage you to pray with me tonight. I would encourage you to say, oh, Jesus, I need you so much. Rules can't save me. I can't save me. No one can save me. That's why you came and you got on the cross. I so badly need you to change my life. If you're watching online, I would encourage you to put your trust in Jesus tonight with me. But if you're a follower of Jesus, church, it is time to live this out. It is time in the most crazy of times to live the unoffendable life to let the loudest thing about us be Jesus, to let Jesus be our rallying point. And like we saw last week, I can be like-minded with somebody I'm not like-minded with if we're both like-minded about Jesus. And so we choose this, right? We choose this. If you want to be unoffendable, you have to live near Jesus. Let's pray together. So God, we humble ourselves today. And we ask you for so much mercy and grace. We need you. We invite you into the process, God. This is not easy. We invite you into the process and we ask you to make all the difference in the world, in our lives, God. We thank you that, God, this is your heart. This is your desire. This is your will that we would live this way. And so, God, therefore, you're going to give us all that we need because it says in your word, it is you who works in us to will and to act according to your good purposes. And in this passage, your good purposes were things like love and forgiveness and unity and humility. So, God, help us to live this out. If you're a Christian, can you pray about that now? Would you maybe say, God, I've got a will problem or, God, I've got an action problem and I need you to change me. And invite him into the process. Say, Lord, grab a hold of the bat here I'm holding. And I'm going to work out this salvation in these areas. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to put your trust in him, you can pray with me now. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for not being scandalized by me. Thank you for not running away from me, but running toward me. Thank you for being nailed to a cross in my place. Thank you for your love that's been poured out on a warped and crooked generation. And Jesus, let your grace change my life. And now, help me to live a life that causes me to shine like stars. Help me to live a life, God, empowered by you, that I can never live on my own. 